Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. We shouldn't, as Democrats, be empowering the Republicans. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. This is Bloomberg Sound On. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, still working from home. How's everybody doing out there with that? Yeah, it's frustrating, right? Uh, We are on official standby watch for 5.30 p.m. when the president will have his daily coronavirus task force briefing and you can catch that and listen to that right here on Bloomberg 99.1. We have an all-star panel. I'm so incredibly grateful for our callers who are calling in for today's show. Three of my absolute favorites. Jen Psaki is going to check in with us. She's the former communications director to former President Barack Obama. She also uh, was the spokesperson for the State Department during Kerry's uh, reign at the U.S. State Department. Guy Snodgrass returns. We're going to check in with him on some foreign policy. He's the former speechwriter to the previous, previous defense secretary. But we begin tonight with a friend of mine, a friend of the program, and a journalism all-star, the legendary, iconic, indefatigable Greta Vance Sustrin. Greta, how are you, my friend? Good. Does that introduction mean I'm old? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't that even too, know, too. Greta. I don't even know what day it is because we've been like right. stuck on Groundhog Day. I, see, see, Jen doesn't realize if she'd paid you two in advance of the show, she would have gotten that. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, did you see this? So the president's going to give his daily coronavirus task force briefing, but it, it's it's now this tension as to when the economy or pockets of the economy are going to be able to be reopened. The U.S. economic data shows deep hit in March and a collapse in April. Let me just read for you this this dire reporting from the Bloomberg Terminal. U.S. retail sales and factory output posted historic declines in March, and other figures showed that the worst is yet to come. So optimistic. The value of overall retail sales fell 8.7% from the prior month, the biggest decline in records dating back to 19. 1992. So then the the data goes on to say that the coronavirus containment measures escalated quickly in the months as states began closing restaurants and bars to dining customers and urging residents to stay home. Greta, when are they going to let us out of the house? Well, I think it depends where you live. Obviously, it's a big country. If you're a rancher out in the west, it's a lot different than if you're in an urban community like we are here in D.C. or or in New York. Um, Look, what I'm hoping for, and I say hope because you've got to have optimism as we're all sequestered. And boy, I'll tell you, uh, and, uh, you know, I had a lot easier than most people in this country um, in terms of sequestration or whatever, the quarantine, rather. Um, but um, I think we're going to have pent up consumption so that I think when we finally do get out of this is I think that the Americans are going to have a lot of consuming they want to do. I hope they do that. And I also think a little touch of patriotism will help. And, 
you know, it's a, we're just going to have to go out and support our neighbors, our restaurants, and everything else. It's going to be tough. Um, but, you know, after World War II, it was tough. After 9-11, was tough. Not, you know, 9-11, in terms of the economy, is not as tough as it is now. Um, but uh, we don't have much choice, uh, Kevin. You know, we got to do this. So I, I hear you on not having much choice, but even, you know, in the past 24 hours, Greta, uh, you've got Governor Gavin Newsom of California openly weighing options to open Calif- parts of California or at least some type of re-entrance plan. You have New York Governor Andrew Cuomo forming, I guess, an alliance or whatever with six states in the region. But, you know, you go out to Michigan, you go out to Wisconsin, people want to get back to work. And so uh, how much time does President Trump have before people are just going to go berserk? Well, he says it's the governor's problem now, as we know from yesterday. So he's going to lay the problem on the governor. It's interesting, Michigan is Governor Whitmer is taking a lot of heat in Michigan because um, she has said, you know, people came and go, if they have a second home, they came and traveled to the second home. She's got some pretty tough, uh, strict requirements in her state. But look, um, you know, it's just I, I cannot imagine that it's one size fits all. And, you know, this is this is hard on an awful lot of people. Very tough. We haven't even discussed the health imp- impact um, or even life or death. But I, I think that, you know, we're going to have to just we're going to have to ease on. Even when you when you watch uh, Governor Cuomo at his um, at his pre- press briefings, he talks about a valve and you're going to open the valve a little bit and see how that works. And you open it a little bit more and see how that works. And if it doesn't, we're going to you know turn the valve back, you know, turn it back tight again. Um, there is you know, if this were so easy. And if there were an um, easy solution to magic formula, I think we'd be hearing about it. But everyone admits this is tough. This is not going to be easy. And it really has hurt an awful lot of people. I always get scooped by Greta Van Susteren. So, you know, Greta always beats me. And I still, you know, I still look up to her. You had a really big get on your uh, on the great TV program that you have with Gary Cohn, uh, the president's former senior economic advisor. What did he what did Gary Cohn tell you? Well, he says we're going to have a, a GDP of about 10 or something in the third or fourth quarter. I mean, he was actually – he made you feel good when you listened to him. I hope he's right. You know, I, I so much want to think that he's, he's the brilliant one. He's the one with the great vision. But he's the one who does talk about this whole thing with consumption as we're all sitting at home waiting to consume and that it's just going to be explosive when we finally get out of here. So he is extremely optimistic. But, you know, I think, you know, the market to me is a little bit like Vegas. It's everybody guesses and rolls the dice. I don't think there's a whole lot of certainty. Um, and then after after something happens, uh, those who happen to have guessed right will you know will tell you know how smart they were and how they got it right. Um, but I don't I don't think right now it's possible to predict with any certainty what's going to happen. But it sure is you know it sure is a good idea to have some hope, but be realistic hope, and uh, and be part of the solution so that when we do get eased out, you know go out of your way to buy things, you know go out of your way to help people. So you know this is. This is there's no perfect solution here, Kevin, and uh, no one can predict the future on this one. But we can at least try to uh, try to work together to to rev up our economy. Gary Cohn, the optimist. Are you listening? Gary Cohn, the optimist. Who would have thought? Well, you know, but that but it all may be perspective because, you know, it's like if, you know, if I expected him to be so much worse and so much more doom and gloom, of course, he's going to seem like an optimist to me. Um, if you expected <laughs> him to say something, you know, much more like, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to roar out of this in two weeks. And of course, everyone would say that he's a pessimist to say that's not going to happen until, you know, November or December. Um, you know, it's all perspective. But um, but, you know, he, he had a, uh, you know, he, what he said made a lot of sense. Let's just hope he's right. Yeah. Well, you know, at this point, I, I don't know, Greta, I struggle with this because on the one hand, I hear what everyone's saying about the social distancing. But I also feel like Main Street is getting whacked worse than Wall Street, you know, and that really but bothers me. But it, but it, well, but it, 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 it angers what me. What makes Greta. it even worse? 
what makes it even worse is that Main, Main Street actually produces things. Uh, yeah. Wall Street just moves numbers. You know, it's yep. you know, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier just to move cash around and buy stocks and bonds than it is to you know make widgets and uh, and you know make payroll in your in your in your restaurant. Well, all right. So tell me one. Tell me one more good piece of news. We got a minute left. Tell me. Tell me something on your radar that's giving you hope and giving you optimism. Come on, Greta. Oh, brother. Um, it's giving wow. Hope. Come on, um, Greta. I, I, you know what? It, this is tough. You know. You know. You know what the truth is, Kevin? Is that I'm so lucky. I'm healthy. My husband's healthy. My family's healthy. Yeah. Everything. And I, you know, it's hard for me to enjoy that because I look around and there are a lot of people in these life and death situations. And also financially, so uh, you know, it, you know, I'm very lucky, and uh, but it's very hard watching so many other people suffer. And I, I just want to get through this so that we can try to help those people. And you want to do something? To, Appleton, Wisconsin's yeah. finest. Appleton, Van Such, uh, Greta Van Such, Go Packers! Uh, no, go Eagles! Oh gosh! Thanks for calling in, Greta. Appreciate the time as always. That's what's so hard about this, folks, is they're telling us to stay home. If you grew up in Delco or Appleton, you want to get out there and do something. I'm over it. Coming up next, Guy Snodgrass and Jen Psaki. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I got to give a shout out to DC Scores, one of my favorite organizations in the nation's capital. Uh, they've been doing DC Scores as an after-school program for uh, uh, youth in, in the district, and they provide free after-school soccer for uh, for folks and all throughout all throughout the, the DC area. And they also educate them on to become young poets and young authors. And they've been posting, uh, and not just DC Scores organizations like it. They've been posting some at-home activities on their various YouTube platforms and whatnot for kids to be able to play. To pick up a ball and play with some awesome DC United members and some awesome uh, athletes, and I don't know. I think that's awesome. You know, we we think so much about uh, so many different aspects of this, but it's very inspiring to see DC Scores continue to do all of their incredible work. It's such an amazing organization, and shout out to everyone in the nonprofit world uh, who, are, who are also having to work from home and think of new ways and think outside the box to navigate. Whatever era we are in. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Joining me on the line is my stoic brethren, Guy Snodgrass. He returns. <laughs> <laughs> Guy is uh, – I always I always never want to mess up his, his title. CEO of Defense Analytics, former Director of Communications, and Chief Speechwriter to Secretary of Defense James Mattis, and author of the best-selling book, Holding the Line inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. I was just telling our crew, I'm reading right now Ghost Wars uh, by Steve Call, and that's been my book of the week, so to speak, that I've been uh, burying myself in. But I can't recommend Guy's book enough. It's really, really well done. Guy, okay, lots to get through now that that intro is out of the way. I do want to start more with the USS Theodore Roosevelt, the sailor who tested positive for COVID-19 on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, passed away of coronavirus, the Navy said yesterday. The Navy, I'm reading from CNN.com, the Navy did not disclose the name of the sailor who was admitted to the intensive care unit uh, of a U.S. Navy hospital on Thursday. And this this USS Theodore Roosevelt issue has really become 
a test of sorts for the for the military. What can you tell us about where things stand now? Well, I think that as we've seen, I mean, as COVID-19 engages with any population, you know, you have a few cases and then suddenly it starts to ramp upward pretty quickly. I know the last time you and I had a chance to talk, we discussed the firing of, of the ship's captain, Captain Brett Crozier, and kind of peeled the onion back on that one. Uh, like you mentioned, what we know now is that one of those sailors has unfortunately passed away. There's over 600 cases on board the ship. And as of this morning, they said that they have another five or so who are now in intensive care, one of which is on a respirator. So the, the unfortunately, the circumstances here, it's continuing to progress on board that ship. And there's a lot of readiness concerns as we look to uh, what does this mean for other ships that are currently deployed and uh, how will the Navy respond, let alone how will the U.S. military respond? Because it, we're a globally distributed force. It's this is probably that- a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why can't they park the, the ship somewhere and put them in a hotel or somewhere? So they can't. Uh, and that's what Captain Crozier was essentially fired for advocating for. The carrier, the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, USS Theodore Roosevelt, the one that's captivated a lot of people because it's been in the press so often in recent days, had already pulled in. It was portside in Guam. And at the initially, the, the Navy leadership had said, let's keep all the sailors on board that ship. And Captain Crozier had said, this is a terrible idea. There's no way to separate people on board a ship. Unfortunately, you know, when you when you line up for chow, there's an incredibly long line. I mean, everyone is standing within about a foot of each other as they're waiting for food. It's it's incredibly difficult to separate the sailors. So he had advocated very loudly for we need to get these sailors as many as we can off the ship so we can do two things. We want to be able to try and separate the sailors out so we can prevent the spread of coronavirus. And the second thing we want to do is give teams and crews the opportunity to get on board the ship and do some disinfecting. We want to make sure we clean the ship as, as much as we can. After about two to three weeks, as you show that all the cases have died off, then you can reload the crew and get the ship back out to sea. He, he saw that as the quickest way to get the ship back on mission. Guy Snodgrass is on the line. He, uh, uh, he, he has joined us uh, very frequently in the past couple of weeks to help us understand how the military is responding to COVID-19. Okay, so that's what's going on in the USS uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Take us now behind the scenes and and then the folks that you're talking with uh, in the intel world and and in the military world. What has the military been doing? What has Secretary Esper been doing uh, to make sure that around the world where they're in in hot in uh, tense places in the Middle East, for example, how is the U.S. military protecting itself uh, during this time at, at a time in which domestically the country is under such constraints? Well, I think it's, you know, the military has always been an extension of the population it serves. I think the the way that the U.S. military is looking to mitigate the impact of existing coronavirus cases as well as to look to prevent any future infections is very much like what we're seeing here domestically. If you have an outbreak, if you have a unit that's had people affected by it, then you want to uh, give them the proper medica- medical treatment. You want to isolate those individuals to help prevent the spread. They have largely instituted social distancing measures when they're appropriate and when you can. And a lot of the units that that I'm still talking with, especially, for example, naval aviation, a lot of fighter pilots, they'll they'll bring in these crews kind of one – you'll have one crew on one week schedule, and they'll fly, and they'll work that entire week. And then you'll take that the next week off, and and kind of the, the next team comes in, and they rotate through to try and reduce the potential for spread. But 
you know, even as we saw yesterday, I mean, enacting such large policies, when you think about the U.S. military, there's more than 3 million men and women who serve in America's military. Trying to enact a one-size-fits-all policy is very difficult. We saw this play out yesterday when Secretary of Defense uh, Esper had taken to the uh, briefing room. He was there with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, and even Esper was saying, hey, you know, social distancing for haircuts. That became kind of a theme yesterday. And uh, General Milley kind of jumped out in the front and said, whoa, 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 that's not policy. We haven't changed anything yet. There was confusion with the reporters in the room. And I think that was just a great example of when you're talking about units that are globally deployed, units here in the United States, it's really hard to try and do a one-size-fits-all wow. policy that's going to apply to everybody. You know, I never I learned something new right there, and, and, and I appreciate you uh, telling us that because just as domestically – we in the United States are having to to weigh different options for opening and reopening parts of the country, uh, cities and whatnot versus rural communities. And a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work on the economic reopening front. I never would have thought that in different regions around the world, uh, military personnel uh, and service members are also having to weigh with that as well. Wow. Thank you. Guy Snodgrass, coming up next, Jen Psaki. You don't want to miss that. Guy Snodgrass, thank you always uh, for the time. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way, from design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I got to just give another shout out to our entire production team, Matt Shirley, Christine Barada, and the legendary Bob Bragg. Because let me tell you, working from home on the production side of things is, is it's a different adventure every single day. But we always pull it off. Joining us on the line, someone else who always pulls it off, is Jen Saki. Jen, this is your first time on the Bloomberg Sound On program, Bloomberg Radio Sound On program. So incredibly grateful for you to lend some of your insights for us. Uh, Jen is a, is a political veteran. Uh, she is the former communications director for the Obama administration, previously also was the spokesperson to Secretary of State John Kerry. So, Jen... Thank you so much for calling in. It looks like Democrats are united. Obama's with Biden. Bernie's with Biden. Now what? Oh, my goodness. No one would have ever predicted this <laughs> just a few months ago. I literally mean that. No one would have predicted it. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's, of course, been lost with far more pressing, important news, which is, you know, the daily ups and downs of coronavirus. Um, but. This is a big deal for Democrats that uh, the primaries wrapped up early, that Bernie Sanders came out and endorsed uh, Joe Biden last week, uh, that Elizabeth Warren endorsed Joe Biden, and that the Democrats are coalescing behind a candidate. Does it mean that every Bernie Sanders supporter will support Joe Biden? No, it certainly doesn't. But every uh, Hillary Clinton supporter didn't support Barack Obama in 2008, and he still won. So uh, it's still good for Democrats because we can – 
you know, get all of our resources nationally and in the states uh, behind one candidate. And boy, do we need it because Donald Trump has a head start in a lot of areas. Jen, one of the things that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks on this program is that tug of war tension between wanting to respect the health community, but also understanding that Americans right now are feeling incredibly anxious and scared. Uh, and restless as it relates to the economy. And if you go into a state like Michigan or Wisconsin, parts of Pennsylvania, that tension is 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 alive and well, uh, just as real as, as COVID-19. How is the Biden campaign, Jen Psaki, going to message in those swing voter districts that likely will decide this thing in November? Uh, and and how, is, how does Biden penetrate that? especially given the current health crisis that we face and really being on the brink of an economic collapse. You know, Kevin, I was at the in the Obama administration in 2009 uh, when we came in uh, during what we thought would be the worst global global uh, economic crisis of our lifetimes. Um, And this, as you as you know, and you've been reporting and talking about is shaping up to be far worse. So you know, we're only in April right now. Um, things will look very different in October and November, um, and they will certainly look different in January when Joe Biden takes office. And by different, I mean they, they're projecting to look far worse um, as it relates to the uncertainty that people have about the economy and jobs and uh, economic growth around the country. So Joe Biden would be coming in to the White House as president during uh, a huge um, economic downturn and crisis in our country. And, you know, that needs um, smart policy people around him to figure out how to keep small businesses open or get them back to to opening up again, to make sure people have um, the the, the, um, support to make ends meet, that they have things like health care coverage. It also requires honesty and empathy from the White House. And, you know, that's not going to put small businesses back in business. I'm not suggesting that. But right now, part of what the American people are dealing with is, um, you know, a lot of inconsistent information from the White House, inaccurate information, a delay in, in action and taking action. Um, and I don't think that a Joe Biden presidency would be like that. Do you think that the Biden campaign is going to uh, unveil not next week or next month, but maybe in sure. August or September, a massive economic vision to to revitalize the nation's economy? Is that is that because this is for my for what it's worth? I think this is going to be an economic election and it's going to be yeah. whose side are you on and who has the better path uh, for 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 revitalizing the economy? I think you're exactly right, um, Kevin, and I lived through one of those, too, and I was the, the traveling press secretary for Barack Obama in 2008. We didn't think it was going to be an economic election, and it turned out to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ulti- yes, I, to answer your question, I think he will and he has to, and earlier than August, uh, because you have to have, you know, when people open the cupboard and when they, when they are open to another option, an alternative, I should say, to the sitting president, because every, every, uh, every election is a referendum presidential election, I should say, on the sitting president, they want to know that the other guy or gal has something else to offer. So Biden is going to have to present an economic vision with substance, but it's also bigger than that, you know, not bigger than that, but it's more than that, I should say. And, you know, in 2008, Barack Obama 
one in part not just not because he had he did have better economic proposals in my view, though I'm biased, uh, than John McCain, but also because people felt like he was somebody who was going to fight for them. And that doesn't sound important, but it sure is when you talk oh, it's to people super out important. in the country. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that what Joe Biden is going to need to do is 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 what he's been doing through his career, which is to be the guy who can empathize. empathize be empathetic, I should say, I don't know why that's a hard word, with the challenges people are facing and make clear that he's going to be the person who's fighting for them. Uh, and that, of course, needs to be backed up by economic policies. Uh, and people are going to have to take a look at that and see if they think that or what, what Donald Trump is presenting is better. Uh, and that ultimately, I agree with you, is likely to be the choice in November. Jen Psaki is on the line. She's the former communications director for former President Barack Obama, also having previously served as the spokesperson for the Department of State uh, for former Secretary of State John Kerry. She, we should note, was an all-star swimmer at William and Mary. A I mean, all star might be an over. <laughs> well, no one's swimming these I was days, on Jen. The swim team at William and Mary. <laughs> no one's swimming these days. All the pools are closed. I tried to I play basketball yesterday, and what did they do? They put a board over the basketball hoops so that morons oh. like me don't try to go shoot hoops. Anyway, see, fun- I what? know. You just have to do a little running outside. It's beautiful weather. Yeah, it is. It is. One final question for you. You've been so generous with your time. By the way, would you come back on? Of course. Appreciate Anytime. that. Jen, people don't know this, but Jen was probably the last meeting I took before they shut everything down. We went to one of my favorite places that in Washington. Dog Tag Bakery. Dog Tag Bakery in Georgetown, which is this incredible which is coffee so shop. so great and delicious and has it such really a great is. cause behind it. And they support, for folks who don't know, Dog Tag Bakery in Georgetown is uh, they support financial literacy for our vets and our veterans, and they do an incredible job. So we got coffee there. And by the way, that was the spot where Barack Obama and Joe Biden got coffee many months, many, many months ago. Jen, final question for you. What does this mean for down-ballot races? I mean, we talk about the presidential, but especially for those Democrats who were able to win in suburbs uh, in 2018 and able to – to get the majority, what is it? How how are they going to have to be campaigning? Because as we've mentioned, COVID nineteen has such a different impact and a different timeline for so many different geographic places across the country. You're exactly right. I mean, I think there's a couple answers to this question. I will say the first one is campaigns as we know it are no longer this cycle, um, which means that it's unlikely there is going to be you know, door-to-door campaigns that are going to help get a state Senate race across the finish line or even a congressional race across the finish line. So campaigns are going to have to be creative and innovative about how they organize and how they get volunteers excited and engaged about, um, you know, about voting um, for their candidates. Um, And, you know, it will be different for incumbents versus challengers, for sure. It always is. Uh, But, you know, I think beyond that, you know, every candidate um, up and down the ballot is going to need to be presenting to the people they want to vote for them, um, you know, how they're going to make things better, um, whether that is the economy and what they would do for local small businesses or people who lost their jobs or don't have um, security because maybe they're a gig worker, um, or how they're going to um, help people protect people's health in the future. Because this could certainly come back. We've seen that happen in other countries. Um, and we need um, elected officials up and down 
the ballot who are going to be mindful of that and be thinking about preparedness and how to make sure their communities are prepared for this to happen again in the future. Jen Saki, you know, one of the big developments outside of Philadelphia and Delaware County is why didn't Delco have a local uh, health official and have a local health health department? So I think all and, politics and is others, local. others may need that, too. You know, I also think this will really raise questions about making voting more accessible because people are not going to all be able to go to the polls in all likelihood in November. And a lot of people are starting to do something on that, including the governor of Virginia. So yeah. uh, hopefully we'll see more of that. I mean, if you can't go see an NFL game, you sh- I mean, how do they expect you to go to the polls? Jen Saki, everybody, thank you so much. Her first time on the program. Just to Thanks, reset- Kevin. It's great, great being on. Thanks Anytime. for treating me so, so seriously, Jen. the first time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for, for calling in. It means a lot. Thank you, Jen. Uh, just to reset here, we are on official standby watch for President Trump's daily coronavirus task force briefing. You can listen to the entire uh, the entire. Daily Coronavirus Task Force Briefing right here on Bloomberg 99.1. I'm just hearing from our White House colleagues that are over there that Dr. Burks and Senator Perdue just walked out uh, to the podium. So that means we should be a couple of minutes away. Jack Fitzpatrick is back. One of my good buddies at Bloomberg from Bloomberg Government. He covers all things Congress. Jack, what, what's going on with economic stimulus round four? Are we on? I mean, when are they going to get this through? Uh, the House isn't even coming back till the first week of May. Right. Well, both the House and Senate have now said it's going to be May 4th before they can come back. In the Senate, they're in this holding pattern. I I don't know if I would necessarily call this the next big stimulus, but they're trying to add more money for small businesses uh, because it looks like we're actually running out of that first tranche of $350 billion for small businesses uh, right around now. The the expectation was it would run out this afternoon. So they want to do another $250 billion for small businesses. Uh, Republicans say that's all they should do right now. Democrats say we need more for hospitals, uh, medical equipment, state governments, uh, nutrition assistance. So they're, they're in a holding pattern Life. on this <laughs> more, more uh, as usual, in a holding pattern on this uh, sort of slimmer package to bolster what they had already done. Meanwhile, there are going to have to be sort of longer-term talks about economic rebuilding and a a real broad uh, stimulus package, but they they haven't quite gotten into that in earnest just yet. Jack, so who – Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, the top Democrat from New York, uh, top Democrat in the Senate, he puts out a statement earlier today saying that his team's having some good conversations with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin uh, on the next round. But, I, I, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. Most Americans on Main Street are growing restless, they're growing anxious, and they're growing angry at Washington as a whole and they're only now just beginning to get those checks deposited into their bank accounts. The president Trump signed money uh, into their into their bank accounts. How much time do you think? I mean, it, it, May is two and a half weeks away. That is an eternity away. Can Washington really wait that long? Uh, as far as the stuff they're running out of money on, uh, it it's tough. I, I mean, you you hear the the difficulty that small businesses have gotten uh, have had in getting these loans uh the frustration is uh very understandable on the medical side uh there's frustration with the lack of masks the lack of necessary equipment in some places and, and the struggle to just increase our capacity i'm curious uh you know now that people are getting 1200 dollars direct deposits if you had that set up uh how much that sort of 
uh, eases people's concerns temporarily. But keep in mind that this is a, a really significant economic crisis, and these conversations about bolstering the economy could be, uh, if it's bad enough, it, this could be a years-long ongoing conversation. So we're in emergency mode now, but the work is not going to be done in the near future. You know, uh, Jack Fitzpatrick is on the line. He uh, covers all things Congress for Bloomberg uh, government. Is any other work getting done? I mean, that's a, an oddball left field question, but are they able to, to, in terms of legislation, is it just economic stimulus, just domestic COVID-19 responses? Is there anything else getting done? I mean, I, I would I've, imagine no. I've been... I've been asking about that. I, I've been checking in with uh, appropriators who will have to fund the government uh, at the end of September uh, so we don't have a shutdown in October. And the House appropriators are starting to write their bills from home. Uh, now, there's a question of can committee leaders do virtual work? Could we see virtual markups of bills that are just part of the regular order stuff that Congress was supposed to do anyway? Uh, and that that is still up in the air, but apparently there have been some conversations about getting the software so that committees can do work virtually from home. So there is some work going on, remote work for Congress happening on, you know, appropriations bills and other issues. Uh, the question is how far can that go? Because they're not going, they're not doing remote voting on the House floor. They're still relying on UCs and voice votes. Uh, so eventually they're, they're probably going to have to come back in person. Jack, can you imagine this? I mean, can, truthfully, folks, it's like a bad SNL skit. Can you imagine a committee? Take any committee, <laughs> and they're all logging in on Zoom, trying to get through a markup, trying to get through a, you know, a pro bill. I, I, I don't even want to visualize that. I know how hard uh, the uh, how hard it is for already on the technological front. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.